What's up, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Professional Athlete Podcast. We are joined this week by Professor Guy Lexener. He's one of the world's foremost experts on sleep and sleep disorders. Currently, he's a neurologist within the Department of Neurology and Sleep Disorders Center at Guy's and St. Thomas Hospitals. He works at a number of other London-based hospitals and practices as well. He is the clinical lead for the Sleep Disorder Center at Guy's Hospital, one of Europe's largest sleep units. He's been featured in radio and television. He's done a couple series for the BBC, both radio and, and TV. The, the TV one might not have come out yet, so maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. He's also the author of two fantastic books that I thoroughly enjoyed. So my first introduction to his work was with The Nocturnal Brain. Really, really interesting. We're actually going to talk a lot about the role that the brain plays in sleep. His specialization is in sleep disorders. So we talk about everything from sleep napia to sleepwalking to some of the more challenging and mind-bending cases that I've ever heard of as it relates to sleep. We also talk about his most recent book, The Man Who Tasted Words. So a fascinating dive into the intertangled web that is our senses and the role the brain plays at the center of that process. This conversation, number one, if you're having trouble sleeping at all, dial into this one. This is not going to be a, hey, here's the five best hacks to help you sleep through the night. In fact, this actually might make you feel <laughs> a bit better about the disruptive sleep that you're having when you hear with some of the cases that he encounters in his line of work. It is incredible. And again, if this is something you're interested in, pick up his books. I really enjoyed them. We have a fascinating conversation today. He, he is such an excellent resource. So I really hope you enjoy this one. I know I say this quite a bit, but truly one of my favorite conversations that I've had the pleasure to have on the show. With that said, folks, if you are enjoying the show, thank you. Thank you for listening. And to those who reach out and, and let me know, I sincerely appreciate it. I have so much fun doing this. And if you're enjoying it as well, you want to help the show, please do uh, like in whatever platform that you're listening to. Give us a follow. That helps new people find the show. And we love to hear the feedback. And gosh, oh, you know what I should also say, folks? I apologize because we missed last week. And I, you might have been worried like, oh, man, is the show going dark again? It's not. Okay. Our entire family got sick. We actually had to cancel a vacation. And on top of all that, uh, we lost a loved one. So no excuses. But in the event that you were looking for one, there's three of them. All right. Without further ado, please welcome Professor Guy Lexener to the show. Here we go. We we're going up. Dr. Uh, Letzner. Oh boy, I hope I said that right. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Ken. Nice to be here. And, and uh, remind me, I, I know that you're across the pond here. Where, where exactly uh, are we talking to you at today? So I'm based in London, which is where I'm at at the moment. And uh, rather rarely for London, the sun was shining today. So I'm kind of oh. slightly, slightly basking in, in the glow of the sunshine. There we go. And on a day where there was sun, here I am pulling you back inside in front of the, <laughs> in front of the computer, albeit at evening. So, um, well, perfect. We, we were catching up a little bit beforehand and, um, you know, sincere when I say 
so interested in the nature of your work. Um, so I, I know that you've done, you know, you've written at least two books that I'm aware of, The Nocturnal Brain, uh, which I really thoroughly enjoyed. And that's how I was actually first exposed to you. And then you most recently wrote uh, The Man Who Tasted Words, which is uh, interesting in its own right as well. So um, maybe just to, to orient those who are listening and are not familiar with your work, could you just talk a little bit about um, you know, your, your practice and, and what it is you do? Sure. Um, so I work as a, a neurologist, a, a clinical neurologist in two of the large teaching hospitals in, in central London. Uh, and I see a variety of individuals with neurological complaints. Uh, a very mm. big part of my practice is seeing individuals with sleep disorders. So obviously people with insomnia, but actually much more commonly individuals with weird and wonderful and sometimes terrible conditions mm. that affect their sleep. Conditions like narcolepsy, extreme sleepwalking, or um, severe neurological disorders that affect sleep. And then another part of my practice is seeing individuals with a, a range of more general neurological disorders, which is where the men who tasted words came from, because those are individuals in whom their senses are often turned upside down or their experience of the world is turned upside down by very small changes in their nervous system. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe too, um, and I understand this is probably an obvious question, but I often find that those are the ones <laughs> that maybe are the most needed. Uh, could you just kind of give a quick introduction into like, what, what does the, the study of neurology encompass? So we're basically interested in any disease or disorder that affects the nervous system. And the nervous mm. system is, is very broad. So when people start talking to me as a neurologist, they think that I'm focused on the brain, but actually neurology stretches all the way from the brain to the spine, to the nerves and even the muscles. Mm. So we see a huge range of conditions um, from conditions like dementia to muscular problems to trapped nerves to Parkinson's disease to headache. It's an absolutely massively broad field. And I think that's why I wanted to ask, um, because it sounds like I was going to say rightly or wrongly. It sounds like wrongly. When I hear neurology, the first thing that pops into mind is, you know, the brain. Yeah. Um, but what has become so clear in in reading some of your work is just, you know, uh, quite literally how intertwined the brain is with everything else that's going on in the body, all the physiological, biological processes. Um, and And something that I've had a lot of fun trying to learn more about over the last year is the nervous system. Hmm. Um, the role it plays in my own life is where I'm starting. Uh, but it's it's just such a, a vast, wide, all-encompassing topic. Um, I have to imagine those who become neurologists uh, <laughs> are, are very ambitious people because this seems like this might be the most complex of all the disciplines to learn. Well, I think people from other specialties would probably beg to differ. Um, ah, okay, but, 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 you know, certainly we, we like to pride ourselves on our, on our curiosity and, and, and slight academic tilt because it is a massive field. It's very complicated. It has, as you rightly say, influences on pretty much every aspect of our lives. You know, people don't mm. think of the nervous system being involved in, you know, our digestive system or our cardiac right. system or the regulation of our blood pressure or all these other areas. So, so uh, you know, you use the term intertwined, and I think that's a really, really 
good representation of the relationship between our nervous system in its wider sense and every aspect of our physiology. Hmm. Well, and, and so to that end, um, you mentioned that, you know, a, a large part of what you do day to day is focusing on sleep, sleep disorders. I guess what, what drew you to the study of sleep? Um, well, in the UK, sleep medicine has historically always been in the realm of respiratory physicians because mm. the primary focus was on on a condition called sleep apnea, which is where people snore loudly and stop breathing in their sleep and that disrupts their sleep. But actually, yeah. if you think about it, sleep is really largely regulated by the brain. We think that its most important functions are for the regulation of the brain. And um, it, it, it therefore is probably primarily, well, it certainly is primarily a neurological process. My background, actually, my research background was in epilepsy. And, ah, okay. And in epilepsy, we use very similar tools for studying the brain to those used in sleep medicine. And one of the big issues in the area of sleep medicine from a neurological perspective is differentiating nocturnal seizures from other strange things that people do in the night. And that's really mm. what drew me into it in the first place. But, you know, it becomes very apparent as soon as you end up working in the field of sleep, quite how fundamentally important it is to every aspect of our physiology and our psychology. Um, it, yeah. it, it really does have huge influences on every aspect of our lives. And that makes perfect sense if you think about it. This is something that we do for hopefully eight hours every 24 hours. It, it's mm -hmm. something that if you don't do for long enough, it will eventually kill you. And it certainly does kill sleep deprivation, does kill laboratory animals when those experiments are done. Um, and, mm. and, and so it makes perfect sense that this is really fundamental to every aspect of our being. Yeah. Well, and um, now I can't remember if this is when we were talking before or after, but you know, th this year, my focus has been on how do I improve my sleep? And it's because you now, again, having the benefit of a podcast and getting the opportunity to talk to people like yourself, um, I was like, if I want to improve one thing that's going to impact my personal, physical, emotional well-being, it's like, you know, as I whittled it down and I went through the whole process, I was like, what am I doing? I like, it's sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, let me start here and let that kind of be my core focus. Um you know, and, and update so far it, it, it is making some really positive changes, which is fantastic. Good. Um, but one of the reasons that I wanted to reach out to you is, you know, as I've kind of gone through that process and I think people who really struggle with sleep, a, a lot of people have probably gone down this road. Um, I kind of started with like, Hey, what are the sorts of things that I can do to, you know, give myself the best chance of getting a good night's sleep. Mm. Right. And so those are a lot of those, like now, thankfully more common recommendations, you know, whether it be like temperature of the room, light, exposure to blue light, devices, all these things, you know, like within a certain period of time of, of bed. Um, but as I was kind of going through that path, um, I came across your book. And I, I what was interesting is, you know, you are dealing with some exceptional cases. Um, some of them, you know, I, I suppose could, could be perceived as like rather humorous at times, but more often like really detrimental uh, and challenging for the individuals who experience them. But I, I found myself in different chapters of that book, and we could even talk about that a little bit if you want. But, um, and it, I, it just kind of occurred to me, I was like, you know what, like so many people struggle with sleep. 
Um, and I think just sleep in general is, is hopefully having a little bit of a moment right now, but there's just so much that the, the general public doesn't know about it. Uh, I feel like there's even less people who truly understand like sleep disorders um, and the type of work that you do. So, you know, that's why I was so interested in bringing you on today and hopefully exposing the audience to just like some of the cases that you deal with maybe might be uh, fun to talk about, but just sort of like the nature of your work and working with people, you know, with these different challenges and disorders. Sure. I, I think it's important to stress that, you know, this is not just talking about rare sleep disorders just out of curiosity. The reality mm. is, is that we all sit somewhere on a spectrum and many of these sleep disorders affect huge numbers of individuals, perhaps to a lesser extent than the individuals that I describe in my book. But if you mm. think about conditions like sleep apnea, depending on which study you look at, up to 50% of men experience some form of sleep apnea, uh, up to 25% of women. You know, there's a very famous study done in Switzerland which wow. suggests that. Restless leg syndrome, which is another sleep disorder that we see very commonly, affects a very large proportion of the population. So up to 5 or even 10% of, of the population. So all of these rare disorders, or at least the rare examples of these disorders, all have implications for many, many people out there. Hmm. Well, and, and maybe that's an interesting place to start. You know, of the patients that you work with, I guess, what are the more common sleep disorders that you typically see? You already mentioned sleep apnea. Well, insomnia is undoubtedly the most common disorder mm. that is that is out there it constitutes about 70 percent of um mentions within primary care physician visits we know that about 30 percent of the adult population within any one year will experience a period of insomnia and about 10 percent of the adult population will have chronic insomnia so so this is mm. extremely common indeed um the the other condition that is probably very common, although one can argue that it's not necessarily a medical condition, is what we term behavioral sleep restriction or chronic sleep deprivation. People simply uh. not sleeping enough. And we think that somewhere between 20 and 30% of the adult population don't get quite as much sleep as they probably should. Now, at, at, at the mild I, end, I would almost think that was, I almost think that number was higher. Yeah, well, I, I, it also depends how you define it, but certainly, you know, some uh, of the some of the individuals that I see with sleep deprivation essentially present like people with narcolepsy. So it is within the differential for conditions like narcolepsy, people falling asleep constantly uh, in mm. ver in in very abnormal situations. But uh, at the end of the day, the underlying cause for it is the fact that they're not sleeping enough. So so this is a, a really major problem. But, yeah. then, but then even some of the rarer conditions that we see, you know, like sleepwalking, you know, affects 1% to 2% of the adult population. People acting out their dreams, about 1% of the adult population. Uh, the, they're, they're not uncommon. Even rare conditions like narcolepsy in the average large school, there will be at least what, probably one child with narcolepsy out there. So oh, wow. the, these are not uh, conditions that you will never, ever encounter. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and so to your point, um, I'm glad that you mentioned this, right? This idea that uh, it's not ones and zeros or black or white. It's, it's a spectrum. 
Um, so I guess it is reasonable that maybe as I was reading through this book, you know, I, I found myself and, and what was interesting too, and maybe we could talk about this a little bit, um, you know, some of these different disorders that you outline, uh, occurred at different points in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and others seem to kind of age out of, uh, or maybe, you know, the environmental, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, impact that I was putting myself through has changed as I've gotten older, more responsible, Um, so, you know, to that end, I mean, I guess one question that I have for you with with a lot of these disorders that come through, like, like, let's say the sleep apnea, um, or sleepwalking even, are those often something that it's like an intrinsic issue or are these often environmentally driven? Is it one of those things where it's, it's always a little bit of both? Yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting question. You know, sleep and in fact sleep disorders, is a confluence of physiological factors, so biological factors. It's a a consequence of psychological factors, environmental and behavioural factors. And Mm. all of these conditions probably have elements of contributions from from all all of these domains. But we know that there are some conditions that have a much more primarily biological predisposition related to them. So, for example, sleepwalking, which is often primarily genetically driven, although it is undoubtedly influenced by whether or not you're stressed, whether or not you're drinking alcohol, whether or not you're sleep deprived, what your environment Mm -hmm. is like, if you've got a phone next to you that's buzzing in the middle of the night that's triggering off sleepwalking events. Uh, And so so most of these conditions have contributions from from all of these things. even if you take something that is very much related to a very clear area of damage to the nervous system, like narcolepsy. And we know that narcolepsy is essentially caused by the loss of a very small number of neurons in in a crucial part of the brain related Mm. to the regulation of sleep and wake. Then um, whilst the condition in and of itself is related to the underlying biology, there are undoubtedly psychological influences, you know, whether or not, you know, some of the kids that I see with narcolepsy who go to college and then are out partying all night will undoubtedly make their narcolepsy worse. Uh, mm. and, and so even in something that's very physiologically, biologically pure, it will have contributions from a, a variety of, of origins. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things, too, that I was fascinated with. Um it, it seems that, you know, a neurologist has to straddle uh, a very interesting balance between what is measurable, what is quantifiable, you know, what can I test? And then almost this, you know, this art form of being a detective. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe your approach when uh, someone comes to see you with some sort of disorder or neurological problem? Like, do you have a, a sort of like structure that you typically try and operate from? Um, when assessing, like, what might someone possibly be struggling with? Yeah, uh, we we tend to classify the sleep problems into three major groups. There's the there's the insomnia, so people who are complaining of having difficulty getting off to sleep or staying asleep. The second mm-hmm. group is of what we term the parasomnia. So these are the unwanted behaviours at night, conditions like sleepwalking, dream enactment behaviour, nightmare disorder. 
uh, mm-hmm. all, all these different uh, things that result in what we term things that go bump in the night, occasionally seizures. And then there's the third group, which is the hypersomnia. So individuals who sleep too much, who are very sleepy, who have a very long sleep requirement. So the first thing is to try and identify which of those areas the person sitting in front of you is most representative of. And then Mm. it's really a case of trying to understand every aspect of their normal sleep pattern to try and understand whether there are biological factors that might explain the clinical picture and also to understand whether there are environmental, psychological and behavioural factors. And the only way to do that, actually, is to talk to somebody. And I spend a great deal of time talking to people to try and understand what the the clinical picture is because people often think, well, you know, I'm just going to go to the sleep physician and he's going to order a sleep study on me and that's going to give me the answer. For some people, that's definitely the case. A sleep study Mm. will clearly tell you whether or not you've got sleep apnea or not. But what it won't necessarily tell you is whether or not your sleep apnea is complicated by the fact that you're depressed depressed or anxious or whether Mm. or or whether the sleep apnea is a bit of a red herring and actually the reason why you're feeling as sleepy as you are is because you're on these 10 different drugs that cause you to feel profoundly sleepy and these drugs are actually triggering off the sleep apnea So, so it's really important to understand that all those tests that we do are really extensions of the the clinical evaluation what i mean by that it's an extension of the, the, the discussion, the trying to understand all of those factors that give rise to the picture of sleep that you're experiencing. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And um, what I found so interesting in some of these <laughs> stories uh, was you also have to deal with like that, that kind of outlier that some people are also uh, at times disingenuous. Mm-hmm. So you always kind of have to be checking like, boy, in addition to what I can measure and test, um, you know, like you also have to weigh, it's kind of like being a cop or a detective, uh, you know, of what I'm being told, you know, how much is an accurate representation yeah. uh, of what's going on? And whether that's, you know, uh, someone just is, you know, kind of underreporting how bad their sleep is because they don't yeah. realize uh, or someone has some other motive. <laughs> which there's a couple of stories in there that uh, I got a good chuckle out of. But um it just seems like it's such a messy problem to try and solve. It is. Uh, you know, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's not always quite so straightforward. And sometimes there is an element of trial and error of saying, well, look, you know, on the balance of probabilities, I think the diagnosis is probably this, and let's try and tackle that. Uh, sometimes, as you've read from the book, um, material facts become evident later down the line. Um, and... Uh, you know, and occasionally, for example, we will see people who are very, very sleepy and deny all drug use. We do a drug test as part of routine testing for for prior to coming in for a sleep study, and we find out that mm. they're chock full of medications or drugs that they've not not disclosed. You, you you mentioned something else which is really important, which is that we are actually generally quite poor witnesses to our own sleep. And mm. the, the subjective and the objective 
the subjective experience and the objective recording of sleep can often be quite different to, to such an extent that I, you know, I do sometimes see individuals who will say, well, you know, I came in for the sleep test and I didn't sleep a wink. And when we look at their brain waves, we can see that they had seven and a half hours of very good quality sleep. Uh, and occasionally really? we see, yeah. So, so this is a phenomenon termed paradoxical insomnia. Occasionally, very rarely, we see the opposite. Individuals who are essentially lying there, they think that they're asleep, but they've actually been awake for the whole time. So, so it really um, incredible. Re, it really reinforces the fact that we need to approach uh, what somebody's telling us with a degree of caution. Obviously, you know, believe the person sitting in front of you, uh, but but bear in mind that you may need to reevaluate things and not take them at face value. Yeah. Well, and, and so I guess to that end, um, something else that's kind of, you know, an interesting element that's come into the picture over the last 10, 15 years is uh, the prevalence of sleep tracking technology yeah. meant for the retail consumer. Yeah. I guess, you know, w w what is your feeling? And now this is a very broad question because yeah. there's a bunch of different companies and approaches, but, yeah. uh, you know, overall, like, do you feel like that is something that is generally helpful, a good data point, a good indicator? Um, or is there still like a lot uh, that we need to do in terms of like getting accurate data from these devices? I think that that's a very nuanced question because it very mm. much depends on why you're doing it so so, okay. so the big issue that i have with these sleep trackers is that a lot of people who use them are people who have got difficulty with their sleep anyway and so they're probably a little bit anxious about their sleep and you know anxiety yeah. does drive sleep disturbance and so many of the individuals that i see have got an underlying tendency towards insomnia anyway they use these sleep trackers and, you know, one can argue whether or not the particular sleep tracker that they're using is accurate or not. But certainly, even if it is accurate, what it tends to do is it tends to drive a little bit of obsessionality about sleep and can actually make their sleep much worse. So, I could definitely see that. <laughs> so, so, so essentially, you're giving somebody a focus to obsess and analyze their sleep um, mm. more than they otherwise would. Now, if you then add into the mix the fact that some of these sleep trackers are less accurate, particularly when it comes to, for example, whether or not you've got light sleep or deep sleep or REM sleep, then yeah. actually you may get into the situation whereby your sleep tracker is telling you, well, you didn't get any dreaming sleep last night, um, which is actually probably not the case. And then you begin mm. to obsess about the fact that you didn't have any dreaming sleep last night whether that's right or wrong and and so that's the major reservation i have about these these um direct to consumer devices that are on the market yeah. well and, and you know and uh, admittedly i fall in this camp for someone who loves to like track you know quote unquote progress yeah. um yeah you could absolutely become fixated yeah. on something like that yeah um something that uh and this is now very broad but um i i you know, you just brought up dreaming. I love the section about nightmares. We have a four-year-old who, uh, you know, is kind of going through this a little bit. And I, I don't believe it's anything out of the ordinary. Um, mm. But nightmares and, and being scared at night, unfortunately, is something that we're dealing with in the house right now. Um, just kind of based, could, could you, could we just talk a little bit about like what we know about dreaming, nightmares? Like why, why is that something uh that happens you know why is it something that our brain takes the time to do 
Yeah, uh, well, I think the short answer is we don't know. Um, still, bizarrely, um, right? Uh, you know what we Amazing. know. What what we know is that dreaming tends to occur in a stage of sleep called rapid eye movement sleep. Um, mm-hmm. This is a stage of sleep that through which we go uh, as adults probably about four or five times a night. Uh, it's a stage of sleep that's very unlike the rest of sleep in that we, during this stage of sleep, our bodies become paralyzed. So all our muscles develop paralysis with the exception of the muscles that allow us to breathe and the muscles that move our eyes from left to right, which is why it's termed rapid eye movement sleep. But in mm-hmm. contrast to normal sleep, actually, when we monitor the brain waves of individuals who are uh, in that stage of sleep, the brain looks very much like an active awake brain, it looks very, very similar. And right. so there is this disconnect between the body and and the brain during REM sleep. Hmm. Uh, and it's during this stage of sleep that if you wake somebody up, that they tend to have those dreams of a narrative structure that we term dreams. Although it's important to stress that actually you can dream in other stages of sleep as well. Hmm. Now, why we um, exhibit REM sleep, why we have dreams, is uh, uh, still a very controversial area, and there are countless theories as to why we might dream. There is uh, there is some suggestion that dreaming is important for learning, for memory, for emotional processing. Uh, it's probably important for understanding the environment that we live in. So one of the theories about dreaming that I find particularly attractive, and it links to some of my other work, is that actually the brain is largely a prediction machine, that in order to understand our environment, to understand the reality around us, we Mm. need to have a model of the world as we understand it, upon which we base our predictions. And Mm. so one of the theories about dreaming is that this is the time in the day that we actually integrate our experiences of the day, our experiences of the week or month or even years before into that model of the world where we tweak our model of the world, which perhaps is one of the explanations why we spend so much time. So as neonates shortly after birth, we spend about eight hours a day within REM sleep. And then as we get older, that uh, amount of REM sleep drops significantly. Um, one of the theories is that, of course, that is the point at which it's most important for you to develop your understanding of the world around you as quickly as possible. Hmm. And that's been termed by um, a, a famous psychiatrist in uh, on the East Coast of the States um, as, as proto-consciousness. So part of our development of consciousness and our understanding of where how we relate to the world around us. Hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... You know, th- there was a couple things that I read that um, I guess I'd almost forgotten about. And one of the things that really struck me is, and, and you just brought this up again, is that, you know, while we're asleep, it's not like the brain is in this like dormant state. Now, stop me when I get any of this wrong. Mm. You're, you're, the, you're the expert here. Um, but I remember, so as an example, right, I, I read uh, Matthew Walker's book. Yeah. Uh, you, I think you even mentioned it. And yeah. uh, this really interesting, I believe it was either birds and then there's like, dolphins and, you know, it's uh, like hemispheric sleep. Like yeah. the one side of their brain can be sleeping, the other can be awake so that, you know, they stay alive. Um, I was like, oh, wow, that's fascinating that animals do that. And then 
you know, the more I read through um, the different cases that you work with, it's like, while humans experience a very, not the same, but maybe in some sense a similar uh, experience where parts of the brain are awake uh, and then while other parts are asleep. Um, and I, that kind of just, just really eye-opening, especially when I started to think about like the experiences that I used to have with sleepwalking, mm -hmm. you know, and I had it as a kid and I think a lot of people have stories, but I remember in college now, again, I, yes, I was drinking. So clearly now I'm like, all right, that played a huge role. Uh, it would not be uncommon for me to like wake up somewhere else, like in a hallway in, you know, like I had gotten up, gotten out of bed, I'd be down the hallway, I'd gone upstairs and I would have like sat or laid myself down underneath a stairwell. I bet you were a popular roommate, were you? <laughs> uh, they could tell you some pretty good stories. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah, some, some of them I would love not to be recorded for all time on the internet. Uh, but yeah, there's a number of uh, situations I've gotten myself into sleepwalking. Um, but it, that just kind of was like an aha moment. I was like, oh, wow, like, of course, like some part of the brain is functioning in awake. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the, the patients that you have, I mean, the extent that they are functioning was to me mind blowing mm. um, the things that they could do. Maybe we could even just talk a little bit about that. I, I think people would be interested to hear um, to the extent that someone can you know function in society while asleep. Sure, sure. You know, so I've had I've had uh, individuals who have driven in their sleep, have ridden a motorbike, have cooked, um, have rewired uh, uh, household gadgets like television sets in the in the middle of the night, and there are some you know famous cases of, for example, people who will paint or draw in the night and uh, even more famous cases that are a bit closer to where you are of people committing murder supposedly oh, whilst, yeah. whilst, um, whilst sleepwalking. So, so, you know, the, the complexity of the things that some people do is, is, is quite staggering. And, and I think this really reflects the fact that, you know, as you say, that the, the brain, when the brain is asleep, it's not a global brain state that actually different parts of the brain can exist in different stages of sleep or wake. And in fact, that phenomenon is what underlies many of the experiences that we will all have, whether or not we've got a sleep disorder, because there are many, mm. many things that people experience, including, by the way, when you're particularly sleep deprived and you're not functioning quite as well as you might be uh, expecting to function when for example you're having word finding difficulties having done a long you know a long day or, or yeah. you're not thinking quite as clearly these probably all have a, a, a basis in the fact that our brain can dip in and out of sleep in different parts on an ongoing basis oh that's interesting so can we can we dive into that a little bit? Because I think, you know, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, like you're tired, you're not functioning uh, at your best. So maybe you have some trouble with word recall. Mm -hmm. But if I understood you correctly, are you actually saying that like at parts of the day while you're actively, you'd say you were awake, parts of your brain could be almost in a sleep like state? Yeah, so there is some evidence for that, uh, what, what is termed local sleep. So certainly some studies mm. that have been done in rodents have very clearly demonstrated that small areas of the cerebral cortex, the outer lining of the brain, demonstrate periods of electrical silence, even when the rodents are, are, are wide awake. But the longer they're awake, um, the, um, the more tired they are, those periods of electrical silence become longer and they become more widespread, really suggesting that there are 
you know, even in the entirely awake brain, there are little islands of sleep that are constantly occurring within our cerebral cortex. And the cerebral cortex is where some of the complex things that we do, like speech, like memory, like uh, cognition, for example, occur. So it makes perfect sense that actually the more sleep-deprived you are, the longer these periods of electrical silence are, the more widespread they are, and the less uh, functional your cerebral cortex is. And there is some evidence in humans as well that that is the case too. Hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Well, and, you know, the other thing, um, and this kind of made me really want to double down on like, hey, you know, uh, someone used the word around me the other day, sleep hygiene. So mm. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. Um, it's but, a, it's you know, a horrible the, term, sleep hygiene. But, yeah. But, but we, okay. we, 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 I'm scrapping it. No, no, it's no, no, no. Well, you know, we, we, <laughs> we all use it. But, you know, if you think about it, what does it actually mean? I, so, sure. so, um, but it, yeah, whoever thought of that as a, as a term deserves to be shot, I think. But uh, anyway, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, and, it, you know, in looking at a number of these disorders that you outline in your book, and again, people, I'm, you know, this isn't a podcast just about the, the book that you wrote like three years ago. You have a brand new book. We, we'll talk about that too. Um, but I just found it so fascinating. It's like these environmental factors, um, as I reflected back on times where I maybe experienced these disorders in varying degrees, it was times where I was, you know, sleep deprived, um, or I was out all night drinking, or I'd been up studying, or, you know, work had been crazy, I'd been really stressful, I hadn't gotten a good night's sleep. Um, I also have three young kids. So that's not to say that uh, those little blessings <laughs> haven't uh, prevented us from I, getting a good night's sleep for about pain. seven years. I share your pain. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, what what was really interesting to me, and maybe we could talk about this a little bit too, is it's like those environmental factors, it seems, can really start to impact, uh, you know, in my like layman way of saying it, like the order of operations, um, the pattern in which parts of the brain should wake up in conjunction with the body. Like, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, like during deep sleep, there's body paralysis. Yeah. Uh, but when there's some sort of dysfunction or, you know, those processes kind of happen out of tune, like you can have all sorts of different disorders that occur. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about that because one thing, and people are going to leave this episode being like, geez, Ken, you've got some, a lot of disorders you need to work through. But I, <laughs> I used to, and it still happens from time to time. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly what you called it, but it was the condition where someone has realized like they're awake and they're in a dream or they, they've even like chosen to like wake up and try and get themselves out of the dream and they realize they're awake, but they're like locked in. Yeah. Their body is still in a paralyzed state. Um, and some of those, it sounded like could be really frightening, which I also can relate to like the terror aspect of like the nightmare or something. But like what, what is going on there? Because <laughs> that one to me, I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. So, so what you're referring to is this condition called sleep paralysis. And, and in fact, sleep paralysis is something that many of us, even without any sleep disorders will experience. Um, okay. It's something that is actually incredibly commonly seen in college students because they are a bit mm. more, more sleep deprived, but you know, many of us will experience sleep paralysis at some point in our lives. And essentially this, this also illustrates uh, another one of these situations whereby part of the brain is in one stage and another part of the brain is in another stage. So essentially, you know, we talked about the paralysis of, of REM sleep, of dreaming sleep. Mm 
but but that paralysis is is really mediated it's controlled by a part of the brain called the brainstem and occasionally, particularly if you're woken suddenly from REM sleep, from dreaming sleep, uh, inappropriately, that mechanism of paralysis doesn't get switched off. So the rest of the brain is awake, but that paralysis continues. And that results in some, as you say, truly terrifying experiences. So people, mm. because they will still sometimes have some degree of dreaming during those periods will sometimes hallucinate in addition to the sleep paralysis. And the types of hallucinations that people will typically experience are intruders in the room or uh, an out-of-body experience, so they're floating above themselves, or that there are creatures in the room, something like that. So if you compound that with the sensation of being paralyzed or being held down, you can begin to understand how scary that might actually be, particularly if it's the first few times that you've experienced that. Yeah. And, um, and again, I guess this goes back a little bit to what you said earlier about like a spectrum, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think to that point, if I even reflect back that there was a certain period in my life and it was, it was around like college, um, and maybe like the first couple of years after where that happened more frequently, very scary at first. But I think as you just kind of alluded to, like, eventually I at least understood what was happening. It, I, I, don't think it really even happens much anymore, but mm -hmm. in, you know, my lifestyle has changed. Dramatically. Less beer, less beer, yeah. much less beer. Um, well, and so I, I think, you know, one, there's probably a number of different like interesting avenues we could go down with regards to disorders. But I think, you know, maybe for those who are listening and they're finding themselves in some of these stories or they go and they, they read your book or they look more into some of the work that you've done uh, and they find themselves with it, perhaps in the descriptions of some of these conditions um, you know, how often are disorders of this nature, uh, treatable and, and hopefully to some extent able to be resolved? Well, in the majority of cases, I think they are, they are treatable. There are mm. some conditions that people grow out of. There are some conditions that can be relatively easily, I, I hesitate to use the term cured, but I think that's probably, uh, appropriate because many of these conditions can be dramatically, influenced by good sleep hygiene to use that term that i hate so Man, so so, <laughs> so so you know people who will occasionally sleepwalk can sometimes yeah. really completely treat themselves by making sure that they're not sleep deprived that they're not drinking lots of alcohol that they manage their stress properly occasionally conditions like sleep apnea can be treated and cured by significant weight loss um hmm. but but you're right, the majority of these cases can be managed rather than cured because as we started off talking about, many of these conditions have an underlying basis in our genes or in our biology. Mm. Uh, and so that's a little bit more difficult to 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 treat. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I already asked you about sleep trackers, but what what is your uh, feeling on those who try and like self-medicate? Um, and, and admittedly, right. Like I think, you know, when I read the first couple cases, it was like, oh, like we needed to provide, you know, more melatonin, melatonin yeah. before bed. Yeah. And my natural thought was like, oh, well, maybe I should, you know, start buying melatonin, <laughs> taking some before bed. Um, like, are there things that people can do that like, hey, it's not harmful 
and it could help? Um, or like, should you really go and talk to someone before you start dabbling and you start messing with some sort of supplementation? So, so I'm a big fan of trying to avoid medication of all sorts, if possible, yeah. because I think that, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I think medications have a role for many of the conditions that I see, and some of the drugs that I use are extremely potent and, mm. uh, being brutally honest, potentially really quite dangerous drugs if they're used inappropriately. Mm. Um, I, I think that when you're talking about things like, um, you know, perhaps getting the odd occasional bad night's sleep or perhaps regularly sleeping less well than you feel you should, my general inclination is to say, look, you know, try and address those issues that you can address without resorting to, to medications because okay. medications often act as a crutch, which means that a psychological crutch I'm talking about. So when you yeah. don't have access to those medications, your sleep will go to pot and you're not addressing the fundamental issues in your, in your life that are perhaps contributing to poor sleep. It's much better to try and address the underlying cause of your sleep issue rather than simply masking it with you know, stuff like melatonin. It, it's important to say that actually melatonin in Europe, in, uh, and including the UK, it, it is largely a prescription-only medication. It's not. Oh, it's not something that you interesting. can. Interesting. You can walk into uh, uh, Walgreens and and pick up off the shelf. Um, huh. So so you know, uh, I, I think that probably. Well, I think it reflects some financial pressures, but it also reflects the fact that I think. By and large, there is a, a, a clear steer away from people self-medicating for their sleep issues. Well, and you know something else that I feel—I I know a lot of people do self-medicate, and uh, maybe I'm leading here a bit, but they have the perception um, that they have they sleep better, and, and that could a glass of wine, uh, it could be you know specific sleep med medication, yeah. um, something stronger than melatonin, right? Like I don't use any, so I can't think of any of the names. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think the thing that occurs to me is in certain states is the use of CBD or, or cannabis, um, oh, yeah. which, which, you know, a lot of people are increasingly using to try and help them sleep. Cool. And so I guess, could we talk about that a little bit? Um, and again, this almost goes back to your point earlier about people are not necessarily great at understanding if they're actually asleep always yeah. or to the extent that they're sleeping. Um, you know, this idea that just because you're technically unconscious, quote unquote, might not mean quality sleep. Yeah. Um, so uh, we know that actually many individuals who have unrefreshing sleep um, have conditions that influence the stability of their sleep. So when we monitor their brain waves, what we see is that they move in and out of the various stages of sleep, that their sleep is a little bit disrupted. Now, sometimes that relates to intrinsic biological disruption by things like, you know, them kicking in their sleep or them snoring or obstructing their airway. But we also know that your psychological state, your level of stress, your levels of anxiety or, or mood will also influence those electrical, those neurophysiological patterns that we see when we record brainwaves. So, hmm. you know, if somebody, and it makes perfect sense because if you're anxious, if you're on high alert, if you're hypervigilant, 
then from an evolutionary perspective, of course it makes perfect sense that you're not that your depth of sleep is not as deep as it otherwise should be. Because mm. you know, if you imagine that you know when we were sleeping in caves, and uh, I'm sure from a from a historical perspective, it's not entirely accurate, but the saber toothed tiger was prowling around the cave, and you were stressed about the fact that you might get eaten. From an evolutionary perspective, it's very important that you don't have the depth of sleep that you would otherwise have because you right. need to be alert to your environment the the problem is is that when you have anxiety or high levels of stress you're in that hypervigilant state constantly and so when um you know the stressor has gone away and you're still hypervigilant then your sleep is still going to be disrupted and and fragmented Hmm. and and on the topic of cbd now i'm asking selfishly because um i'm just i'm just interested like is there any um you know uh, validity to the fact that it it can help people sleep, or do we still not know? Well, I I, I think the jury is out. Certainly, there are some studies okay. that suggest um, that certain um, cannabinoids can help sleep. There is some evidence that other cannabinoids can worsen sleep. One of the difficulties mm. with using straightforward cannabis is that it's very dependent upon the particular strain and the strength. Uh, and, and so I don't think that we are in a position really as, as doctors to recommend that um, cannabis or, or cannabinoid compounds uh, should be used as a long-term treatment for sleep in general. I think we still need to do quite a lot more work in this area. Yeah. And that's always the uh, the tough balance that you have to try and strike as just like a consumer. It's, <laughs> you know, uh, what are you being sold? What has been proven to work? And then just constantly trying to like, because it becomes exhausting for yeah. the average person who really just wants a better night's sleep or yeah. wh- whatever it is. Um, you know, there's so many different options and to be able to tell what's legitimate Uh, it's tough for people, but I think, you know, to your point, um, I like hearing that it's like, Hey, let's try and start with the things that you can control that may be contributing to sleep. Um, and even if something, let's say could potentially help, um, you know, being very aware of like, are you just creating a a new crutch, um, that you're going to be dependent upon that perhaps maybe you could have, uh, solved for in another way. Uh, I mean, I, I would take it even more extreme so you know for example Mm -hmm. some of the patients that i see will for example use valerian extract or you know some sort of herbal tea to help them sleep which which is fine you know if it helps then great the problem is is when you don't have that tea available you know you're away from home you don't have that tea and then you're going to sleep terribly it just to me it makes logical sense that actually what you should be trying to do is to address those issues within you that are giving rise to the poor sleep rather than Mm. being reliant on anything extrinsic now of course that's not always possible and i think that we have to be pragmatic and say well look you know if you've tried to address those issues and you're still having terrible sleep then there may be plenty of things that we need to do from an extrinsic perspective to try and improve your sleep but at least to to use that as a starting point yeah that makes sense. And, and maybe this is a, a good segue, uh, as you were talking about uh, the autonomic nervous system, um, the need to be vigilant, how that could impact your sleep. It, it just coincidentally, that's something that uh, I am a person who falls in that camp of, you know, chronically 
stressed, at least at this point in my life. Um, and I've become more aware of that. And so again, trying to do a bunch of things to make sure I find time to like relax and get myself to like come back down <laughs> to a reasonable baseline. Mm -hmm. um, but could, could we talk a little bit about your newest book. Mm. Um, so understanding the first book primarily uh, focused on sleep, but as you said at the start of this, the nervous system intertwines all the different systems of the body. Um, you know, what, I guess what was the impetus for writing this this newest book? What is it? The man, the man who tasted words. Yeah, uh, it's an odd title, but uh, it, it, I like. Well, is it based on? There's a pre an, an earlier book that that was. Um, you're like 30 years old? Yeah, I think, I think you're referring to the man who mistook his wife for a hat by Oliver Sacks. Yeah, I think it was probably a subconscious nod to, to that book uh, in, in hindsight. Um, so, so, so the starting point for, for the book was really to demonstrate how even very minor changes in our nervous system can fundamentally change how we perceive reality. So that's where mm. it started out. But as I uh, got sucked into the, this book, I rapidly fell down the rabbit hole and ended up in some very, very strange places, you know, talking to people with, for example, synesthesia. So individuals whose senses merge. So who will, for example, taste uh, foodstuffs when they hear particular words, which is where the title came from, or individuals yeah. who will see colors when they hear music, uh, for example. And I, I just read, um, sorry to interrupt you, but it's so fun. I just read uh, Dave Grohl's book. I'm not sure if you're familiar. He's I, I the, know, I know, I know who Dave Grohl is. I haven't read his book yet. Yeah. So he's, he's amazing. But um, he talks about how he has, I'm going to butcher this word, synesthesia. Yeah. No, I hope I said that right. No, that was good. Uh, but with music. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember for him, it was shapes. I think it was like colors. Mm -hmm. So like certain sounds like create colors in his mind and shapes. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, oh, wow, that is incredible. Uh, and then, of course, stumbling upon your book, it's all coming full circle a little bit. I, I think what all these cases really very clearly demonstrate is that our reality, the way that we perceive the world around us, rather than it being related to, you know, the atoms, the molecules that surround us physically are actually a construct of our brains and how... Mm. The way that our brains are connected, the way that our nervous system and indeed other aspects of our body work can have really quite dramatic influences on what we perceive the world to be. Yeah. So it gets very deep. Point. It gets very deep and philosophical very, very quickly. No, I love it because you're right. It's, um, it kind of means, you know, I mean, guys, I just have to be careful how you say this. Um, there's no necessarily like objective reality, mm -hmm. especially when you start thinking about this at, uh, an individual in terms of like how they experience reality to your point. Yeah. Um, you know, there might, you might be able to come to consensus with people as to like what's occurring, but in reality, I mean, there's someone who can taste words, someone who sees colors when they play music. Um, and that's as real to them as anyone else's reality. Uh, yeah. which does become like, it kind of gives goosebumps a little bit. It, it makes me feel, it does, <laughs> you know, it does. Like, yeah, oh. there were points when I was doing some of the research for this book where my mind was completely blown by the fact that it, it makes you question everything that you take to be the truth. Hmm. Um, so, so there is this concept in cognitive neuroscience of, uh, of, um, a controlled hallucination that reality is a controlled hallucination. Basically, okay. we all hallucinate the world around us. 
um, and that hallucination is as a result of the way that our brains work. But what we as humans agree to be reality is um, a controlled hallucination that we, to some extent, all share or at least can agree upon. And if you don't agree upon that reality that most of us share, that's when you are you know, labelled psychotic with serious mental illness or you've been taking uh, a whole load of hallucinogens or, uh, or, or various other things. So, so the reason why synesthesia is so fascinating is because people with synesthesia are normal. You know, this is not a rare condition. About 4% yeah. of the population have synesthesia to a greater or a lesser extent. Their brains, mm. their brains overtly, when we scan people with synesthesia, look exactly the same as anybody else's brains. There is some subtle evidence that actually the way that their brains are connected is slightly different. But the, mm. but but essentially what we're saying is that there is a sizable proportion of the population whose brains function in a very slightly different way from our own, but whose experience of reality is very, very different. Hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, what made the hair stand up on the back of my neck is mental illness, um, because again, like they're experiencing that reality for, you know, whatever number of reasons, uh, you know, they might be in what we would call like a, a psychotic break, uh, at that time, but it does, it just kind of, oh, you feel like you kind of slip into this realm where it's like, oh yeah, well, there's a lot of gray in there and it's like, okay, well, like how much are you able to kind of slide in one direction before you get outside of what's like an acceptable, um, you know, uh, understanding of what reality is supposed to be. So I can see, I don't know. It just kind of made me ugh, <laughs> a little bit there. Um, so to that end, um, thinking about the nervous system, one of the things that I found really interesting is the way in which multiple um, senses are interconnected mm. uh, for everyone. Mm -hmm. And how detrimental that can be when, for some reason, that gets out of whack. Could, could we kind of talk about that? You know, what immediately comes to mind is um, the story of, uh, I believe it was a young man who like couldn't sense pain. Mm -hmm. He had some like super rare genetic condition, um, but just like all the other ways that that kind of manifested in his life, things that you wouldn't have necessarily thought would have been impacted by an inability to like have that sense. Yeah. So, so uh, I think you're referring to Paul who has got a, a a very small genetic mutation, basically one out of the three billion letters of his genetic code is altered on, on hmm. two, two of his chromosomes. And as a result, he has never felt physical pain in his life. He can feel emotional pain. He can feel the pain of heartbreak or of loss. But when it comes to physical pain, he doesn't understand what it is. You know, his father uses the expression that it's like you know, trying to talk to him about pain is like trying to teach a blind man to see or to mm. teach a blind man about colors. It's something that is so outside his realm of experience that he has no fundamental understanding of it. To such an extent that he and his sister, who also has this condition, you know, as children, they would, you know, they're, they're, the way that they would entertain each other would be by sticking their hands in the fire and listening to the sizzling of their, their skin in, in the fire. You know, they would, you know, he would regularly... <laughs> you know, jump off the roof or if his parents wouldn't give him treats after after dinner, he would 
break his own fingers in a way to try and get them to do what he wanted. Oh, my goodness. But when you hear these stories, you begin to appreciate how fundamental pain is to the human experience, that it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's fundamental role in our protection, in our learning, um, and the fact that it is so interwoven with human life, you know, the life mm-hmm. of all animals, and how different life would be without you know, one of these senses without one of these sensations. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thought too. Um, and it kind of, you know, I mean, now, now we are getting deep, but thinking about from an emotional state, right? Everyone, I think generally strives, uh, to be happy and would prefer to have more good times than bad. Um, but this is almost kind of, um, I don't know if like a warning is the right word, but it just kind of enlightening to like, hey, look, there is a benefit to the ability to experience experience both sides of that coin. Um, and, you know, without pain, like you, you don't necessarily understand how detrimental it could be <laughs> to the rest of your life, uh, whether that be physical or emotional. That's where my mind kind of goes with this. It's just kind of like, a, uh, you know what? It's not necessarily healthy. <laughs> to completely just live uh, in one state, it, it's important to kind of experience a full breadth of whether that be emotions or senses or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And listening to Paul's story is very reinforcing of that fact. Yeah. Well, and and so I guess, uh, and I know I've, I've kept you here for a little bit and uh, we, we can start to wrap it up. This is just so interesting. Um, I guess maybe, you know, if I could, we could end on this topic here how much of your work is spent when we start talking about, um, you know, the nervous system, are you typically dealing with conditions like the two that we just mentioned, or are you also focused on just like better regulation of the autonomic nervous system? Like, you know, you mentioned before, like living in this kind of like fight or flight state, Mm -hmm. and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, Mm -hmm. but I I think that's what I took from it. Um, you know, how much of your work is, is more like disorder based, versus just better understanding how this crazy complex system works in helping people just kind of better auto-regulate uh, the state of their own nervous system? Well, I, I work in a, a large multidisciplinary center. So, you know, I work with psychiatrists, I work with psychologists uh, and sleep therapists and, and a range of other specialists. So, so mm-hmm. You know, when, when it comes to the bread and butter of my work, my, the, the bread and butter is to diagnose people, to try and understand what it is that's causing their sleep issues, and to make sure that they get the correct treatment wherever that comes from. So because of that, because I work with sleep therapists and psychologists, often it's a case of making a diagnosis, of recognizing the fact that rather than this being some terrible physical ailment that it's actually being primarily driven by that hypervigilant state and actually initiating proper treatment as a way of trying to seek long-term resolution of people's issues um Mm. and, and 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 you know what you what is really important to understand is that for many people with insomnia it's that hypervigilant state can be less generalized and more specifically related to sleep because you know if you've had very disrupted sleep for a long period of time then actually sleep itself becomes a very stressful experience or that the attempt to get to sleep becomes a very Mm. stressful 
uh, uh, experience that drives that hypervigilance, that drives what we term hyperarousal. And so sometimes specifically addressing those issues surrounding sleep to downregulate the autonomic nervous system, particularly when it comes to sleep, is often the way to seek long-term resolution. And in fact, we do now have some very good non-drug-based treatments for conditions like insomnia that are really largely centered on retraining the brain to have good associations with sleep rather than bad associations with sleep and to address that hyperarousal, that hypervigilant state. I mean, oh, interesting. And we know that those kinds of non-drug-based treatments uh, really are very, very helpful indeed to the majority of individuals who have trouble sleeping. Could we could we spend a moment just kind of talking about those those broadly? Yeah. Um, so essentially, if you um, if you've had difficulties with sleep for a long period of time, there are psychological factors that will probably act to drive that pattern to persist. Some of those are conscious factors. So the kinds of things that people often experience is a degree of anxiety or agitation at the fact that they're struggling to get off to sleep. Often people are anxious about the fact that they're not going to be able to perform the way that they would hope to in their job or in their social life because they know that they're going to have difficulty sleeping. Sometimes it's purely a frustration and agitation that the person next to them is storing away whilst they're struggling to get off to sleep. Mm -hmm. But But there are also some unconscious factors that give rise to that persistence of poor sleep. So you you may be familiar with Pavlov's dogs, Ken. So this is the, um, the, the Pavlov was a Russian neuroscientist who realized that when he fed his dogs, they would start salivating in anticipation of them be them being fed, and then realized that if he rang a bell before he fed them, very quickly every time the bell rang, they would start salivating. So that's termed the conditioned response. It's mm. uh, the association of a particular environmental stimulus with a, a particular physical activity. And in many ways, we're no more glorified than Pavlov's dogs. We have this association between bed and sleep. Uh, it's, a, it's a conditioned response as well. But for individuals who've had poor quality sleep for a long period of time, that positive association between bed and sleep is replaced by a negative association because mm. people will often spend a great deal of time in bed um, awake rather than asleep. And over time, your brain begins to associate being in bed with being awake. In fact, what a lot of people with insomnia do is they spend even more time in bed because they kind of think, well, I know I'm going to sleep really badly tonight, so I'm going to go to bed extra early and try and right. get a few more hours in. But actually, Get what, a couple in on the front end before I know I wake up exactly. at, at but, 2 in the morning. Oh, I, I get that logic. But what, they're actually, <laughs> but, but what they're actually doing is they're spending more time awake in bed rather than asleep and that Mm. then can compound the issue so so we now know that there are a number of different types of psychologically based treatments and the perhaps the most widely known and studied is a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that tries Mm. to address both those conscious and unconscious psychological factors that give rise to insomnia and we know that CBTI, which is what it's termed for short, can help up to 60 to 80% of individuals with significant insomnia without without touching drugs, without touching valerian, CBD, melatonin, whatever. 
Um, yeah. Which is kind of what I mean by trying to address the underlying issues that are driving the insomnia rather than simply masking it with an external agent. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, something that I've been trying to learn more about, and uh, again, I am one of those people who would love a good data point and to track progress. Mm. Um, you know, uh, based upon your professional opinion, is heart rate variability um, something that is worthwhile for someone to track if they're focused on trying to better regulate uh, the autonomic nervous system? Well, there, there's quite a lot of research going on in this area in terms of looking at heart rate variability and other, and, and um, data that you can extract from heart rate variability to try and understand um, parasympathetic and sympathetic activity. So those are the two different contrasting parts of the autonomic nervous system, in particular when it comes to you know sports performance and recovery. Um, but, but it's important to understand that heart rate variability um, can be influenced by a whole range of other things. So obstructive mm. sleep apnea can cause nocturnal heart rate variability. Uh, restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder, which are neurological disorders of sleep, can cause heart rate variability. So you need to understand what it is you're actually measuring. Uh, and, mm. we, and, we see, and we see that, uh, for example, heart rate variability changes dramatically according to what stage of sleep you're in. Mm. Um, and so simply measuring heart rate variability without any of the other parameters may not be quite as useful as people think. Interesting. Okay. <sighs> Come on. So, sorry about that. Like, yeah. Yeah, Ken, go for it. <laughs> HRV is the one. You got it. You're good. <laughs> um, oh, man. Well, I, honestly, I, I know it's late over for you over there. I could pepper you with questions for another hour. This stuff is so fascinating. <laughs> so maybe, maybe you would be willing to subject yourself to another uh, – uh, interview in the future, but oh, this is this is so so intriguing. Um, I talked quite a bit actually about the two books, but for people who want to understand uh, a little bit more about your practice um, and would love to know more about what you're doing, like where where can I point them? Um, uh, you can point them to my website, guyleshtoner.com, or uh, you know, as you say, the books are very good illustrations of the kind of work that I do. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really, one, I know people will be interested um, by this conversation, but I also hope that, you know, someone finds it, uh, takes something from it. And uh, maybe for those who are, you know, potentially struggling with one of the disorders that was mentioned or that they find in the book, uh, this can start them on a path to, to hopefully uh, managing it more effectively and, and maybe even, you know, uh, solving for some of these issues. So thank you very much. No, it's it's my pleasure. And, you know, absolutely. That was the the reason to, to write these books in the first place. And, you mm. know, people like you disseminating this kind of information is the way that many people end up getting an answer to what it is that is causing their problems. Yeah. So thank yeah. you. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, come on. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you. We'll have to have you back in the future. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure, Ken. Thank you.